Please take your Bibles. I invite you to turn with me to the book of John, John's Gospel. And we're going to continue where we left off this past Sunday. And when we're finished today, we'll pick up where we leave off next Sunday, studying this gospel verse by verse. And I'm going to be reading in verse 22, and we'll read through to the end of the chapter, which is uh, at verse 42, and then we'll pause and ask the Lord for help to understand and obey His Word. Verse 22, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father am one, are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which one of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Verse 40, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed him there. This is God's word. Let's bow once again in prayer. Father in heaven, we've got our Bibles open. We ask that you open our mind and open our understanding. Lord, gather and focus our attention on these words and and the task of interpreting them to make sense of them. Lord, we ask that you would hold back distractions of anything that we've got to do this week or even later today we're together now in your house as a family Lord speak to us through your word change us where that is necessary and Lord give us ears to hear eyes to see we ask all this in your name amen well today's passage uh, believe it or not Uh, actually marks the end of the first half of the book of John. There's 21 chapters. We've read through 10. We've got basically 10 left before we get to that 21st chapter, which is 
somewhat of a summarization of things already covered. There's not a lot of new material there. And it's not so much a, a break between just one half and the other half numerically or even chronologically because the first ten chapters we've been studying, and I was curious, I looked this up. We started this the last Sunday of October in 2018. So we've been at this for a year and three months. Now if you take the three months that we took a break this past summer to study the book of Judges, just so things didn't get stale, that's about one year. So about one year to study the first ten chapters given over to events that John chose that are really all over the place from the three years of Jesus' ministry. These next ten chapters focus really on one week of Christ's life. The last week he was here on earth before his death, his burial, his resurrection. And then John doesn't tell us a whole lot about the time he spent here before he ascended into heaven. But a lot is going to change. And as such, what we're reading here is, is basically transitional material, especially the last few verses we just read, beginning in verse 40. So I thought I'd give you somewhat of a, I don't know, a disclaimer, a warning. Parts of this are going to sound academic, perhaps even tedious. There's so much going on here, they're moving parts. This is information that might not sound exciting as we read through it, even though it is quite dramatic. This is one of those episodes in the series that you'll wish you didn't skip later as we go on, because some of these things will be tied together. Uh, there's a lot of importance here in these little details. Uh, so we're going to need to put on our thinking cap. We're going to need to uh, not push back on certain pieces of historical background. We'll need to even make sense of some of this. And then we'll have to look at this for the duration. And then it'll pay us later. This is somewhat of an investment, I guess, if you want to look at it like that. But let's look at verse 22. John gives us some background information. He's setting the scene. A lot's changed from the previous paragraph. He says, At the time of the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. That's the time that these events happened, during the Feast of Dedication. So we ask ourselves, what's the Feast of Dedication? We've seen a lot of feasts already. The Feast of Tabernacles. Passover Feast, that's the most famous. You have to go to Jerusalem for that one. Here's another feast. And this feast is different than those others in that it's, a, it's basically a, a recent thing. Uh, this was not given to the Jews way back by Moses, like when he put together the Passover feast. This actually took place during the intertestamental period. You say, that's what he's warning me about, intertestamental. What is intertestamental? That's the space between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's between the Testaments. There's about 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and John the Baptist breaking the silence and talking about this Messiah that's coming that everyone needs to get ready for. And during that intertestamental period, a lot of things took place, some of which are included in uh, books like First and Second Maccabees, which are apocryphal books, meaning they didn't make the final cut of Scripture. So we see them in other Bibles, but not necessarily the ones you'll see in the pew in front of you or the ones you have in your lap. 
But this feast happened after something that took place in 164 B.C. The temple under Judas Maccabeus, also known as Judas the Hammer, was cleansed and rededicated. Why would the temple need to be cleansed and rededicated? Because Jerusalem was destroyed about three years prior to that. And that was by the Syrians led by a fellow by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. That sounds like a dangerous name. He was a dangerous man. Destroyed the city, set up an image of Zeus in the temple, and sacrificed pigs on the altar. Now, if you know anything about Hebrews, that's an unclean animal. I don't know that you could do anything more to desecrate the temple of God than to sacrifice an unclean animal on the altar. That's what he's done. And then set up a false god in the Holy of Holies. So what we had there is is what a lot of theologians uh, would actually consider to be the near fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy of the abomination of desolation. It sounds important too. It means the abomination that would leave desolate. Once that's been done to the temple, you can't use the temple for anything until it's been cleaned and rededicated. I said the near uh, fulfillment of prophecy. A lot of the Old Testament prophecies have a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. Because we hear those words again with Jesus and Matthew talking about the abomination of, of desolation. And that that's likely what took place in A.D. 70 after Jesus had left. When Rome tore down the temple and defiled it. This had happened a number of times. But what does that mean to us? Well, the first time it happened, they decided after they rededicated the temple in 64, after this man, Judas the Hammer, helped hammer the Syrians and took back control of the temple and the city, they decided to feast for eight days. And after this, they decreed that a similar eight-day feast should be held every year thereafter. This is now presently known as, anybody want extra credit? Hanukkah, the festival of lights. And the reason it's called the festival of lights is because they would light lamps or candles because they could under the Syrians, they couldn't even have so much as Hebrew Scripture in their house. But now they have the freedom of worship. So lights in everyone's windows was a testimony to the fact that now we can worship again. Now, at this part of the year, during Hanukkah, near our Christmas time, John tells us it was winter. And I thought, there's probably a few folks that'd be interested to know. They got up this morning and came to church to know how cold it gets in the wintertime in Jerusalem. If that's you, somewhere between 40, 43 degrees to 50, 55 degrees. So a little warmer than here in an average winter. That's actually their rainy season as well. Gets much colder sometimes and every now and then, like here, it snows. And it's beautiful when it does, but that's not likely. That'd be an exception. So why these details? It's hard to say why John includes them because they don't necessarily be, they're not necessarily tied to what he says afterward. He's just kind of setting the scene for inquiring minds that perhaps want to know. And really, you tell me, 
Do you like a testimony that has specific details? Or a testimony that has generic details? If indeed he's writing this, that you may be convinced that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing you might have life through his name, that's his purpose statement at the end of the book. That's why he's doing all of this. Then the more specific the detail, the stronger his testimony, the more believable it is. So he's coloring these things up with things that came from his own memory as an eyewitness to these things as they happened. But then there are those that think John may be using this as imagery, perhaps to just color up what now has become the coldest of relationships between the Pharisees and Jesus. And that's very true. Uh, It's as cold as it's ever been. And they're going to make another attempt on his life. And even if, if, I think it's a reach to say that's why John included this, but it does give us a change of tempo from the previous passage where he's talking about a shepherd and sheep. And if you're thinking of a shepherd and a sheep, I bet you a dollar in your brain you're thinking of a green pasture. But now we read of Jesus alone, walking underneath Solomon's portico, and is cold. And maybe he's under Solomon's portico, which was roofed with columns. It's called a colonnade to get out of the cold. Or the rain. We don't know. But it's at this point, verse 24, we read, So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense if you are the Christ, the Messiah? Tell us plainly. So they basically hem Jesus in. They see an opportunity to go approach him put him to the test, get him on record, and get rid of him. They say, tell us plainly. Now, based on what we've learned of Jesus so far, in ten chapters over selected pieces of a story taking place over three years, do you think that the Jesus we know from our year's worth of study, is he going to oblige them with a question like this? Likely not. And there's a reason why he hasn't gone on the record so plainly and clearly. And by the way, just this is, this is free. The greatest things in the universe can't be described in a simple answer to a simple question, can they? What is the meaning of life? Why am I here? Why do I like the color blue? You say, is that one of the greatest things in the universe? Well, sure, color is. I'd rather see in color than black and white. Um, some of these men that asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You don't read that he said, bow your head, close your eyes, repeat after me. As if that's going to do the trick and to put into their mind all that is necessary to know That God is to be worshipped as creator. Like we sang the last version of that last hymn. Gladly bound at his feet. There's a lot going on here. It cannot be condensed just like that. The gospel cannot be reduced to a sound bite. And Jesus is not going to allow them to. Jesus spent three years with his disciples. And at the end of that three years, they didn't understand a handful of things. 
All of that would make sense later after he'd risen back into heaven and over time with the scriptures they put it all into place. So for the modern secular American, Jesus Christ as Lord, the Son of God, is a reach. There's so much more that has to be explained before any of that even makes sense. So he's not going to tell them plainly. Not the way they want to be told plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness. You should pay attention to those. But you do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. You're not my sheep. You don't hear my voice. And you don't follow me. It's basically what he's saying. Again, a lot of theological moving parts there. So what have we got? When Jesus says, I told you there... He doesn't mean that he had said the explicit words, I am Messiah, in answer to the question they were looking for. In fact, as far as this gospel goes, he'd only said as much to two people, a woman at a well and a man born blind. But those were private conversations. He'd never gone on record with the Pharisees like they want him to go on record. Um, Jesus, by matter of practice, had avoided such specificity. So why? Why don't you just tell everybody? Well, it's complicated. And part of the complicated part is these loads of political and even militaristic baggage that was hanging on the average Jewish idea of what the Messiah was all about. You say Messiah to a Jewish crowd, they immediately think somebody to get Rome off our back. Somebody to take us back to the way things were when King David and King Solomon were in charge. If you'll pardon me something from our own culture. Somebody to make Israel great again. That's not meant to be a joke. Put it back like we had it. Before other things got wrong and now we serve the emperor and use his money we can't even stone anyone if we want to put it back like we were when we were top of the hill when we were in charge where anyone who didn't serve Jehovah paid for it take us back there that's our Messiah Jesus was no such Messiah and if you pay attention to all the scriptures that talk about this Messiah there's plenty of room to understand the the use for a suffering servant. John the Baptist said it best, the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. These people wanted their problems solved, felt needs, the things that bothered them. They did not think of Messiah as someone to take away their sin. That's why Jesus is here. So you tell me, is it helpful for Jesus to say, sure, I'm the Messiah, if all they're going to do is say, when are we going to knock down Rome? And at no point say, I'm ready to confess my sins. So all he would do is misserve them and, and, and heighten their misunderstanding by confirming that he's someone that he knows that he's not, that they wonder if he is. He then adds, you don't believe me because you're not my sheep. And here's where we need to be careful. This is an instance, another instance. We've seen many of these. Technically, this is called Johannine predestinarianism. Somebody's saying, now that is why I came to church this morning. 
And even typing this, uh, spell check didn't like it either. <laughs> Neither of those words, word says is actually a word. But what that means is basically Yohannine, that means John. He's writing this. This is how John is telling us the gospel. And predestinarianism is another way of saying that we've been chosen by God before we chose God ourselves. It's all through the pages of Scripture. In fact, even little things like we read over earlier where he said, You're not my sheep. My sheep who hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. Not they know me. I know them. Another case of Johannine predestinarianism. And if we hold that really tight, it almost looks as if Jesus has been dispatched by the Father to tell these Pharisees, Game over, boys. You're not my sheep. So you lose. But that's not what Jesus does here. By uh, the end, in verse 37 and 38, it's quite clear. He's still talking to people that he thinks are capable of making a decision to believe in him. For the first time, he says, hey, if you don't believe me, believe the works. If you don't believe the works, then don't believe me. But at least look at what I've done and line it up with Scripture and see if these things don't testify to the fact that I am who I said I am. Obviously, their ability to believe is still wide open and on the table. So it's both. We see this all the time. Is this salvation something that God does or something that we do? It's obviously something that God does, but He expects us to believe. And that's very clear here. He says in verse 25, The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness to me. What are those things? Well, just to take the big ones, a, a, a man crippled for 38 years is walking, a man born blind is seeing, and if we flip the page into chapter 11, we're going to see a man that was dead four days walking around and alive. So what do those things say about Jesus? And, and remember, John always uses the word signs for these miracles. It's a sign. You remember... Months and months and months and months ago when we described this, I used that big old green sign off of 40 uh, as a sign pointing to Fuquay Varina. You're on your way to Wilmington, you see the sign, the exit, Fuquay Varina. I passed that sign so many times I couldn't count it on the way to the beach. I didn't know what Fuquay Varina was. I didn't know it was about 14 miles off the highway there. All I knew was it was a good place to stop and get some barbecue or go to the Cracker Barrel if you can get on the parking lot. But the sign wasn't all there was. For a long time, that's all there was. It was just a sign. But the sign's pointing to something bigger and better than the sign itself. And that's this lovely town with all you lovely people. The signs here about men that are, are healed and a man that has been resurrected... Those are fine things of themselves, but they're pointing to something much greater, and that is that Jesus, the man of Nazareth, is God's Son and is here to take away the sins of the world. So to wrap up what we've just seen here, it's not that Jesus has failed to be clear. They have failed to believe. The drift of Scripture and the pointing of the signs to those Scriptures provide enough evidence for the one with eyes to see and ears to hear. You ever met somebody that's just kind of locked up in their head about a certain opinion they have? There's a difference. There's someone that, that knows their mind and then someone who's made up their mind 
You can know your mind and who you are and what's inside of it without making it up. My mind's made up. I'm not moving. I'd never drive a Chevrolet all my life or Ford or whatever. The one who knows their mind, but the mind is still open to other opinions that they may find to have corrected opinions they have in error can learn something. These men's minds are made up, it's obvious. You know people like that. And the more you try to give them evidence, it's only for them to just slap it down. They're not actually considering the evidence. It's, it, it's almost like our, our, our political game these days. You win by assassination of the other guy. He's no good. Vote for me. Basically. Instead of, no, no, listen to what I have. To, this is, these are good ideas here. So that's where we stand with the Pharisees and Jesus here. Verse 28 and 29. I'll try to pick up the pace here. Take us down to verse 30. Verse 30 provides the explosion that gives us the reaction in verse 31. So let, let's work through the, the pieces here. In addition to these sheep that Jesus knows who hear his voice and they follow him... Verse 28, I give them eternal life. They'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. We sang about this. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So Jesus makes the distinction between those who are not his sheep, the ones that don't hear, he doesn't know them, they don't follow him. And that's the group that's standing in front of him that don't believe. He gives this contrast of the others that do believe. Eternal life, never perish, no snatching away. Fits right back to the sheep and the shepherd and the wolf who comes in to scatter the sheep. Fits real well. And uh, as a side note, you know, this is an excellent view of eternal security. And as an adolescent born in a Christian home with a daddy who's a pastor... I wish I could tell you I didn't doubt my salvation at times. Um, probably because I've, I, I put too much emphasis on what I contributed to the whole transaction. And if I had much to do with it, I could have done it wrong, right? But here's the way my father used to describe eternal security from this verse. He would take something, I don't know, like a quarter or one of our toys or a piece of candy... And he put it in his hand. That's the first part of the verse. No one's going to snatch them out of my hand. But then he said, but then there's God the Father. That's another one. And he said, and I get it. And we take our little fingers and try to dig in to get what's in there. And when we were little, it didn't work. He didn't use the illustration after we grew up. (laughs) Um, But when we were kids, we couldn't get it out. No one is going to snatch away the possession of God. No one's going to snatch away the possession God gave to His Son. It's a double security and has nothing to do with you. That's how this works. So how does he fold this into his conversation? Add it all up together. They said, tell us plainly. He says, I've told you, but you don't believe. And then those that do believe have eternal life. And that's because, and here's the explosion, I and the Father am one. I don't know that there's a greater pillar in our theological understanding of the Bible. You have no gospel 
We have nothing to meet here this morning about if Jesus is not God, if they're not the same. The, the ramifications of this couldn't be any more huge. So they asked him if he was the Messiah. That was the original question, right? That's the chosen one of God. What does he tell them plainly, on record, that he's the Messiah? No, that I'm God. So how's that about their question being down here and his reality being up here? And at this point, it's quite easy to see that even though they don't believe, they perfectly understand what he's just said. Look at verse 31. Here's the reaction. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. They know exactly what he just said. He said that he's God. They don't believe him. And the next couple of verses are about as dramatic as they come as far as a, a tight situation. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. Which one of them are you going to stone me for, basically? What, uh, what are the charges? You know, they're gathering up rocks. And he's saying, of all those things that I've done and people that I've healed, which one of those seals my execution papers? And then I think their response to here is probably with anger, probably with volume, probably with red faces, probably with stutters. Because I don't know how they could look at any of this with a, with a calm demeanor. It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. And with that, they've drawn down on him. Y'all watch the TV shows when someone approaches a car and it doesn't look right, so they unholster their weapons. It's not a comfortable situation. These guys are cocked and loaded. Jesus is looking at them. They're looking at Jesus. And there's one more exchange here before the paragraph break. And this happens to be the most difficult to interpret of all of them. But of the three instances where they attempt to kill Jesus, it's all three of them are because of this, that he claims equality or oneness with God, which is exactly what he is. But there's one technical difficulty between Jesus, who really is God, who can claim to be God because he is, and these people who don't believe that he is. When he says that he's God, but they don't buy it, then what he's saying is that he's in direct competition with the real God which is blasphemy. Jesus can say this and not blaspheme. I or you cannot say this and not blaspheme. So Jesus answers them, and this is probably quick, and again, with blood pressure high, everyone there. It is, not, is it not written in your law? You tell me. Is this in your law? I said you are God's. That's actually a reference to Psalm 82. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and set into the world, sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? The reason why this is difficult is because it's difficult to interpret Psalm 82, much less to interpret what Jesus means in his use of Psalm 82. Because in Psalm 82, it sounds like God, capital G, is calling men God with a lowercase g. In fact, if they are given the authority 
to use his words on his business to tell the world his truth. Almost as if he's deputized them. God's little G. So what Jesus is doing here, the line of his argument's not so complicated. He's saying that the passage in Psalm 82 proves that the word of God, or the word in the Bible, God little G, is legitimately used to refer to others than God big G himself. If there are others whom God, the author of Scripture, can address as a God with a little g, and also sons of the Most High, on what biblical basis should anyone object if Jesus says he's a God? Because he didn't specify big G or little g. You see, is Jesus trying to squeeze out of this on some technicality? No. He's got men cocked and loaded looking at his face. And he gives them a short, quick, sharp jab of Scripture. Is this not true? Then what's the big deal about it? And on a technical basis, they have to think. Why? Because he says something that makes them pause. Scripture cannot be broken. That's something they both share. You ever find yourself at odds with someone, but then you find that you've got some neutral ground, some shared thing that the two of you both value, well, then you've got something to work from, right? They both agree Scripture cannot be broken, which is another huge pillar of theological understanding. If, if there's any errors in this book right here, we're the most miserable people trying to figure out what it means and live our lives by it, right? Because how do we know which part's good and which part is, is not good? Scriptures can't be broken. And Jesus doesn't use like the Ten Commandments to base this. He uses some obscure one word in a psalm, which is a poem meant to be sung. So if you ever want to know Jesus' worth of Scripture, there it is. It can't be broken. So, again, the heat of the moment, snap judgment by the Pharisees and their anger. They were partly right because God... Jesus does say he is equal with God. They're partly wrong because this fact doesn't mean he's in competition with God. He actually is God. So he can say it. And then they're profoundly mistaken because they've not grasped the scriptures that point to these things as truth. So it's not a calm, cool, reasonable, gentlemanly debate these men are having over a meal somewhere. They're holding stones... And Jesus successfully earns a few more minutes to talk. But what does he say? Verse 37. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. I'm with you. If these works don't come from heaven, then I'm a magician, no different than the ones who turn snakes into rods or rods into snakes standing before Pharaoh and Moses. But if I do them... Even though you do not believe in me, believe in the works. Why? That you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. If that's where you need to start, start there. But at least start. So let's take this and try to see if any of these shoes fit. Because we're, we're done with the trying to understand We need to work on the how to obey. Here's three questions. 
that I think we could draw from this that are worth our consideration. Number one, does your concept of Jesus match up with who He really is? Is it obvious the Pharisees' concept of the Messiah was not at all who Jesus really was? Say, well, we're not Pharisees. We know better than that. We know He didn't come to throw off Rome. Yeah, but we've got other things that are important to us. That just happened to be what was important to them. What's important to us? Well, there's some churches that say if you want to be rich and your family healthy and put together, then come on here and we'll teach you how to do that. we got every program in the world from better dad and better mom to raising children to doing your finances or working out your exercise or diet. He's the Lamb of God that came to take away the sin of the world. That's the only reason why He came. It's very simple. He's headed into the Passover feast as the spotless Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. That's why He's here. It's amazing how many people will pitch Jesus and church for some crisis moment. You know, your your marriage is wrecked. Well, we've got what it takes. We'll show you in the Scripture. Suppose all of that works and your marriage is fine, but you haven't yet discussed the sin in your life that distanced you from God in heaven. And without Jesus' blood, through faith and salvation, you're going to still die lost. Good marriage, but lost forever. Right? There's so many things that can trip, up, trip us up in, in this idea. We want Jesus to be the guy that takes care of all of our surface issues. And then, yeah, that's sin stuff, but that's the most important. That's what keeps us out of heaven. That's what makes us an abomination to God Almighty because of our sinfulness. So we've got to make sure that our concept of Jesus matches up with the Jesus we see revealed in Scripture. Number two, do you believe that Jesus is very God of very God? That's just too much to pass up. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Jesus can't be a good teacher. Jesus can't be a human who is God-like. Just like old Larry King said, that, that's what does, if, if, if I knew that Jesus was the Son of God, that would make a big difference. <laughs> it would. It's everything. Because no man could pay for his sins. And God couldn't sweep those sins under a rug. So God sends his son to take the punishment, the place, the penalty of man. And because his son hasn't sinned, death won't kill him forever. He'll raise again on the morning of the third day. Death has no claim on him. That's how this works. And then number three, do you believe that the scriptures cannot be broken? Again, that's a layup theologically. Move through this passage and don't pick that one up and look at it. Boy, wouldn't it be convenient if there were places where we could say, you know, I don't know, maybe back then, but right now it doesn't really seem to fit so much. I'd put that as maybe a lesser priority scripture. It'd be convenient. Get us out of a lot of tight spots. But the truth is... By God's own mouth. It can't be broken. It's His Word. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with His Word. 
His law, His justice, or His grace. All right, the calm before the storm is verse 40. They went away again, or he went away, across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. So the end of the first half ends where the first half began, right? It began with John crying in the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, baptizing people, repentance. This is where Jesus goes. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign. So they thought John was great and he didn't do miracles. Then you've got Jesus who does. But what are these people who thought so much of John the Baptist? What do they say? Everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. So people are believing there. They're not believing in Jerusalem, but they're believing there. So in one sense, this is going back to the beginning. And on a purely human level, it might look like a complete failure to the Pharisees. Well, don't know how he got by us again, but I hear he's back out in the desert. And if you think about it, all he's got is 12 men, a handful of others. He's done some miracles. But the multitudes that were following, he turned them off when he said things that were too hard to hear. They walked away. And Jesus wouldn't go back to Galilee. It's quite possible it wasn't safe for him there either. Marks the end of Jesus' public ministry until his final journey into Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Again, as the sacrificial lamb pay for the sins of the world. And we'll learn next week as we start chapter 11, only after hearing that his friend Lazarus is sick, would he go once more to Bethany? And even then his disciples would warn him not to go, even to a funeral. So if you add all this up and go back, you don't turn there, but chapter 1, verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Well, some of them are believing. We just read that in verse 38. They said everything that John said about this man was true. But they haven't seen it all yet. The final miracle is not Lazarus' resurrection. Because he would again die like anyone else. But it's Christ's resurrection. That should seal for anyone who believes the record. God said, I'm satisfied with the payment made in full. He hadn't yet taken away the sin of the world. But that's part two. And we begin that next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for what you've given to us in the form of scripture. We've We've studied hard even through technical pieces to try to understand what's going on. But Lord, might we understand the, the most important of all this. Jesus is God. The scripture can't be broken. You chose us before the foundation of the world, but you are still open offering salvation to anyone who will believe. Lord, give us the guts to tell people we have no idea who will believe and who won't. You did and you still told them. So Lord, thank you for your gospel. 
Thank you for truth. And thank you for the Lamb of God. We ask that you bless us as we leave this place after our benediction. And may we say it's been good to be in the house of the Lord. We ask all this in your name. Amen.